This is Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois, hosted by Ed Yonka, Director of Communications and Public Policy. Thank you, Max, and welcome to the initial episode of Talking Liberties. We're here to talk about a number of the issues that we work on each and every day to serve the people of Illinois and people all across this country, but most of all, to share with you how our work is informed by the Constitution and by the laws of both the state and the nation. These are very trying times for many of us, and we have a lot of difficult work, and we want to be able to share with you some of that work that you don't often read on the front page of your newspaper. So we're very excited about this, and we hope that you'll share this podcast with your family, with your friends, and with others who support both the ACLU of Illinois and the Constitution. I'm really excited about this first episode because we're going to be joined a little bit later by Kelly and Miguel Cervantes. Kelly is a member of the ACLU of Illinois Next Generation Society Board, and Miguel is the star of Hamilton, Chicago, and they're going to talk a little bit about their work and about what the ACLU and civil liberties means to them. But before we talk to Kelly and Miguel, we have a pressing issue that we want to talk to you about today. Over the past two weeks, America's attention has been riveted on our southern border as we've watched what can only be described as a rolling human rights crisis created by the separation and detention of children away from their parents by immigration officials. The numbers are absolutely staggering. More than 2,200 children have been separated for their parents. That was an average of about 66 children per day at the height of the crisis. We wanted to talk about this issue and even how it affects us here in Illinois, and we are joined by an expert who will help us do this. Ashley Hubner is the managing attorney of the National Immigrant Justice Center's Asylum Project, which provides pro bono representation to more than 500 asylum seekers each year. Ashley received her degree from Boston University School of Law. And Ashley, it is a pleasure to welcome you to Talking Liberties. Thank you for having me. So let's begin with sort of a simple question. What happens when a child is separated from their parent? Well, I think the first thing to keep in mind is a lot of the procedures we have in place for the treatment of children right now are intended for children who come on their own, who are unaccompanied. So to some extent, the procedures that have been created for these children who've been separated from their parents are, so far as we can tell, being created on the fly. So normally when a child is designated as unaccompanied by um, immigration, um, they must be transferred from the Department of Homeland Security to the Department of Health and Human Services with Within 72 hours. That's the department that has the responsibility for the care and custody of unaccompanied immigrant children. But what's been um, different in this process, of course, is that these children have not been coming to the United States unaccompanied. They have been coming with a parent and then have been separated. So from what we've heard, um, the process differs depending on how they're treating the parent. In some cases, they've been separated right away. In other cases, they've been separated once the parent was taken away for federal prosecution. In some cases, the parent was brought back after after the federal prosecution process was initiated, and then they were separated later on. And these unaccompanied minors you're talking about in the usual circumstances 
Those children tended to be older. Is that right as a general proposition? As a general matter, yes. I mean, I think since 2014, we had seen an increase in both much younger children and uh, female children as opposed to in prior years when they were mainly teenage boys. But yes, um, most of the time we are seeing children who are teenagers. What's it look like in terms of the conditions or the way in which a child is treated Um, when they're separated from a parent or when they're unaccompanied? Well, initially they're held um, in the custody of usually um, CBP as a part of the Department of Homeland Security. That's the Bureau of Customs and Border Patrol. Exactly. So the people who are apprehending them at the border. And the conditions have been very, very poor. NIJC and a number of other organizations filed a complaint some years ago regarding the conditions. Very, very cold conditions. Um, Lights are on all the time. Poor food. um, Abuse of the children in the facilities. But that, again, that's in the Department of Homeland Security's custody. Um, and that's when they're when they're with their parents sometimes and sometimes without their parents. Is that where we're seeing, I think, the images that everybody's seeing now of the cages? Are those the kinds of facilities that you're talking about? That's correct. That's when children are still within the custody of the Department of Homeland Security. So one of the things we've heard is that children from the border have, you know, I think there are a variety of different numbers as we record this on June 25th. I think the last number that I heard was 66 children from the border have ended up in Chicago. What happens to them when they come to Chicago? So at that point, the children have been designated unaccompanied, whether that is a correct designation or not, based on how they entered the United States. Once they've been designated unaccompanied and are transferred to the custody of Health and Human Services and then to um, to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, um, here in Chicago, they are held in shelters for children. Um, the children are going to school. They're meeting with clinicians. They're getting medical care and things like that. So it's very different than Department of Homeland Security custody, but they are in a custodial setting. They cannot come and go as they please. This isn't this this isn't like being just in a home. They're actually in some place where they're they are being detained. Um, in that they cannot come and go as they yeah. please. Some are in home settings. They have very right. different settings that these shelters are held in. Right. Um, am I right that some of these children are with parents who have come here seeking asylum? And I think there's been some at least questions that I've heard about. Uh, in a couple of ways about what what is asylum and what does that process look like? Sure. So asylum is protection for individuals who are deemed to be refugees, but it's a process that people can only start if they are physically present in the United States. And in order to get asylum, they have to prove that they've either been persecuted in the past or would be persecuted in the future. It's got to be on account of one of five protected grounds, race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group, and that persecution has to be by either the government or someone that the government is unable or unwilling to control. So in this instance where people come here fleeing the gang violence, that's not something the government in those countries is able to control. Uh, That's part of why they're seeking asylum. Exactly. And so usually in those situations, individuals are able to assert based on their experiences that they are part of a particular social group. So they may have been targeted because of their family membership by the gang, or maybe they were a witness to a gang crime and they were being targeted for that reason. Or maybe they were a woman who was in a relationship they were unable to leave with a gang member who wanted her to be a forced gang girlfriend. So in the midst of all of this, uh, the president signed an executive order to stop this process Does that cure things from from NIJC's perspective? 
Not at all. I think it creates significant confusion as to what is going to happen moving forward. Um, so essentially right now, what we understand is happening is that some of the referrals of parents to prosecution for unlawful entry have stopped or at least been put on pause, which means that family separation may have stopped um, right now for a limited time period. But what's very clear from the executive order is that the detention of these parents and children is not going to stop. And so what it seems to be happening now is that the president wants to move again towards family detention, but on a much, much broader scale than we've ever seen at the past. And, you know, whether children are with their parents or not, children should not be detained. Families should not be detained. So this does not at all solve the problem. Um, individuals who are seeking asylum should not be detained, and it's particularly egregious for parents and children. In those circumstances. Let me ask you, if you were just speculating do you think that every child will be reunited with their parent, or do you think there are kids who are just going to be lost and slip through the cracks? Well, we know from news reports already that some have not been reunited because their parents were deported and while the children are still here in custody. So we know that has already happened to some extent. Um, moving forward, I think it's it's very difficult to know. Um, I don't know that, that children are necessarily going to be lost in the system, but it's going to be very challenging for parents to um, manage the system of reunifying with their kids, particularly when a lot of these parents are going to be detained and may be detained throughout their entire process. When someone is in immigration detention, they may have very very little ability to call anyone in the outside world. Nobody would be able to call them and have contact with them. So to be able to reunify a parent and a child, it's not simply a matter of getting in contact. The parent actually has to be released from custody, and that's the problem. And that, and that and there's nothing in the order that really moves that process forward. No, and in fact, I believe the president really doubles down on wanting to maintain detention for all of the parents. Ashley, let me ask you this. Uh, for someone who's never seen an immigration proceeding, either for an adult or for a child, what is that like? And what does it look like for one of these children who've been separated or who are unaccompanied? They're here in Chicago and in the course of these proceedings. For you and your colleagues, what does that look like? What does that feel like? Well, immigration court proceedings look like a trial. There is a government attorney there from part of the Department of Homeland Security who's acting as the prosecutor. There is a judge who's part of the Department of Justice. And then there is the respondent, the individual who is the non-citizen. They may or may not have an attorney. Um, immigrants in deportation proceedings do not have the right to appointed counsel, so many individuals have to proceed pro se, even if they are a child or they're mentally ill or they're an asylum seeker. Um, so it's it's an adversarial process. Um, it's Immigration law is incredibly complex. It's been compared to the tax code and its complexity. And so access to counsel is, is absolutely critical, but it's even more critical when somebody is detained because someone doesn't have access to the documents that they need, to the evidence they need to present their case if they're all on their own. Can, can I just stop for just a minute there with that? This is a decision that could affect somebody's life, literally whether they live or die. And they don't have a right to counsel. Is that right? That's correct. Um, one of the immigration judges has referred to it as practicing death penalty cases in traffic court um, because they are incredibly serious cases for some of these children. For some of the adults, um, they are going to go back to countries where they could be persecuted or tortured. And so having an attorney who can explain the process to them, who can make them understand what information is critical to tell the judge and to help them present their evidence in the best possible way. Of course, this is really critical for children who may have no ability to really understand the legal process. Some 
sometimes they don't really know why they had to come here. Mm -hmm. They knew it was unsafe. Their parent told them they had to go, um, but they don't really understand the dynamics in their country and what really put them at risk. So having an attorney is is really critical um, to be able to present the case to the judge to make sure the judge understands all the full facts because despite what may be often portrayed um, by the administration, it's incredibly difficult to get asylum. The standards are very high to meet. Um, The evidentiary burden is very high. And so without an attorney, it's very, very difficult for somebody, especially a child, especially somebody who's detained, to present a full case and be able to get asylum. Are these cases hard to litigate? Are they hard to present? Do do you build a personal connection with the clients that makes it difficult, win or lose? It definitely does. I mean, I think you are speaking with somebody who, um, when you're representing an asylum seeker, sometimes you as the attorney are the only person that they've ever told some of the most horrific experiences of their life. Um, So it's a privilege to be able to assist asylum seekers in this process, but it is definitely challenging and obviously much more challenging for the asylum seeker who has to rely on what is often a stranger um, to be able to help him through this incredibly convoluted process. Actually, what's the one thing that you'd want people to know who are listening to this about practicing in this area? What what's you know, what is it you'd want them to know that that probably they don't just from following the news? I think that that representing an asylum seeker, getting asylum in the United States is incredibly complicated. You need to make sure that you have a competent attorney who's experienced in this process. And if you are someone who is not an immigration attorney, not an asylum attorney, and you wish to get involved, there are many opportunities to do so. Your help is greatly needed, but make sure you are working with an organization that's able to support you and guide you throughout the process so that you are able to present the best possible case for your clients. You know, I think one of the questions that we've heard at the ACLU, and I'm sure that you and your colleagues have heard quite often is the refrain of, what can I do? So what can people do? Where should they go? Where should they be directing their energies on this issue moving forward? I think there's a lot of different ways you can get involved depending on your resources and your capacity and and things like that. So right now, a lot of the most urgent crisis work can only really be done by the legal service providers that are directly interacting with the kids and the individuals in detention centers. We need our capacity to be freed up, and you can help do that by taking on some of our other cases that might not necessarily be directly related to family separation. At NIJC, we always have a tremendous need for representation by pro bono attorneys of asylum seekers. If individuals are interested in getting involved, they can go to NIJC's website, www.immigrantjustice.org. There is a link for individuals who are interested in being volunteer attorneys. You can find out more information about our opportunities and how to connect with us to get involved. Ashley Humner from the National Immigrant Justice Center, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. You've heard Ashley say what you can do if you're an attorney to help out in this situation, but there are things that each of us and each of you can do. Join with your friends, with your neighbors, and with your family members, and attend a rally. Speak out. Call your elected officials, especially members of Congress. Tell them that you oppose this policy, and tell them that the U.S. government should not spend a single dime more to further the separation of children or the detention of families. That is not something that any of us should be supporting. To that point, we are pleased now to have two local activists, Kelly and Miguel Cervantes, who have taken action on this particular issue. Kelly is a member of the ACLU of Illinois Next Generation Society Board, and Miguel is the star of of Hamilton in Chicago. Kelly, 
Is this activism new for you? Is this something sort of post-Trump election? Is it something you were drawn to before? I I remember the specific moment in college where I couldn't tell you who said it, but they they described someone as being all talk and no action. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I remember going home and thinking about what that meant and never, ever wanting someone to look at me and think that I, you know, would talk the talk but wouldn't walk the walk. And so I think it, it started for me there. How do you feel advocacy really works for you now? You have a, you know, you're at a different stage of your life than, than those days, right? You're in a different place. Is it is it different for you in that way? Oh, absolutely. Because I have a family now. I have two incredible children. And, you know, I I want my children to inherit a nation that is better than the one that was given to me, that is stronger, that is um, more compassionate, that is more supportive, so that they can then carry the torch and, and continue to improve on, on our democracy. And I think that that's a really beautiful thing. And that's something that we've brought our son and daughter to protest and to marches mm-hmm. and you know, that this is accessible and this is something that you can do. So, Miguel, what what are the issues early on that animated you? It really has become in my adult life as I've started to see that my experience is not the experience that other people have. Right. You know, like I'm a Mexican kid and I, and, and then all of a sudden I see real discrimination and real distance between haves and have nots. And, I, and, and then I think, well, why, how, how is that even possible? Yeah. Why is that even a thing? I don't understand. And then you start to see the inner workings of discrimination and 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 racism and and socioeconomic problems that create this divide between people. And then all of a sudden, it becomes crystal clear that that there is so much more work to be done to actually get to the you know free and easy society that I thought we were in. Right. You know. The, and and that's an ongoing process. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. I mean, that's what that demonstrates. Is even in the good times, you know, we're always faced with these kinds of things. Um, I I, pr- I promise not to ask. A, a second one, but I've got to ask a first Hamilton question. <laughs> you said you were an immigrant kid. That's what. I'm, and so, so does is the story meaningful for you in any way? Additionally, because of that, I mean, because of that element of the of the story of, of Hamilton. I mean, it has to be. It has to be. I like I said before, I didn't really have a, a, an, an experience in my life where things felt like I was on an uphill battle, but. Those experiences are real. Those those experiences are happening every single day. And I guarantee you, my father, and I remember him talking a little bit about how people looked at him when he was with my mom and 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 thinking that that without the journey that my grandparents went on and he went on and and there would be no me, there would be no platform to stand up here and say the things that we get to say. And, and I think to be able to tell the story about, about an immigrant society and an immigrant man who goes out there and makes a difference in whatever way he can, it, it, it tells the story of how my family got here and how I got here. Right. You know, as an actor with a name like Miguel Cervantes, it sort of gets put into a little bit of a... a, a you know, pigeonhole. Like mm-hmm. you, get, you get pigeonholed mm-hmm. into a certain yes. type of role or a certain type of character, and it just feel like getting into Hamilton and all of a sudden, you know, watching the 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 way that people see 
a lead character or, 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 or George Washington or, 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 or a character that's supposed to look one way or, or do something a certain way, all of a sudden it's all gone. I, I've never felt more proud to have Mexican heritage in my in my ancestry than I have in the last couple of years. Yeah. You know, and it's and it's it's such it's been an amazing thing to be part of. And I wish my father was had been here to see this, um, how how his son is carrying this name and, and carrying a flag, you know, and I and I'm happy to carry it now. Yeah. Yeah. Um Kelly, I, I wanna pick up on this kind of notion of of that immigrant story and in particular uh, a story that the ACLU's been involved in and you became involved in uh, in particular and that is the story of Ms. L and her daughter. Um, just for those of you who don't know, Ms. L is a woman from the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, who feared for her life, uh, was assisted by an aid agency to leave the Democratic Republic of Congo. She traveled by ship uh, to the port of San Diego where she presented herself at the immig- for the immigration authorities. She passed a credible fear test for asylum, which is not a simple thing to do. Uh, and then she was taken into custody where a few days later, she and her daughter uh, were separated. Um, I should add that in in they have now been reunited here in Chicago, but, and this is important, the ACLU has now taken this matter up, not just as a lawsuit having to do with Ms. L, uh, but with uh, many families across the nation um, who've come in in the same way and been separated. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit first uh, about how you felt when you first heard that story. That I mean, that's a parent's worst fear. And they were separated for four months. Right. And the ACLU is fighting to get them together. And um, incredible reporting by Rex Hupke with the Chicago Tribune, who really kept the pressure on and was asking the questions. And, you know, why is this happening? And it was, uh, I mean, this is, this is torture for these families, for these little kids. You can't tell me kids separated from their families. You can't tell me that that doesn't scar those children and those it's it's pretty unimaginable which but was you stepped up and did an amazing thing which i think we should talk about and give you um some credit for cuz it was really remarkable and i wonder if you'd just share that you know after after reading these stories and sharing it on social media and you know sort of turning to the ACLU and saying, you know, what can we do? How can we help? And Ms. L had just been reunited with her daughter here in Chicago, which is incredible. But the the journey for them doesn't stop there. Amazing that they're together, but but now what do you do? Um, so with some guidance and, and making sure that we were crossing T's and dotting I's because we certainly didn't want to interfere with the legal case, I set up a GoFundMe. Um mm-hmm with a goal of $25,000 to raise for Ms. L and her daughter to help support them um, on their journey. And within two weeks, we had reached that goal. And I mean, it was just so inspiring to see the community and, you know, mostly the Chicago community coming together and donating to this campaign. Um, there were mom, I saw mom Facebook groups, you know, talking about it and and raising awareness for the campaign. And and it was mostly small donations, $20 here or $50 there, maybe a that couple a, hundred or 200. It was- That takes a lot of donations to get to, tw- to get that high. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, you know, it was really inspiring. And the messages that people were leaving, you know, this is, you know, we support you, we're behind you, you know, we, you know, 
really wanting to make sure that that Ms. L felt welcome in our community. And that was a pretty incredible feeling to see mm. the community rally, to yeah. see the support that they have. And, and, you know, and now they do, they're not, you know, my understanding after being able to speak with the shelter director is, you know, and I had no idea it's going to be, you know, a year, two years before right. they're able to leave the shelter system. Right. And obviously they're getting legal assistance from some of our allied groups in terms of working their way through the legal system in terms of their asylum claim as well. Yeah. Um, I wonder what you think more broadly uh, uh, when we think about immigration policy under the current administration. It's not, you know, the separating families is one piece. Uh, You also have this idea of people being deported, um, many of whom have been here for, you know, generations. You know, suddenly the guy who runs the grocery store or the restaurant in a local community is the guy who's being uh, being deported. Um, What do you think that says about us? You know, the only thing that comes to mind is fear, right? It feels to me like an administration and a policy that is that is aimed at instilling fear mm-hmm. throughout all people who are here, people who want to come here, people whose dream is to come here. This is not rooted in a desire to help people or desire to make things better. It seems like it's a desire to scare people into into acquiescing to the outcome that they want. Mm-hmm. I mean, I completely agree. I, you know, they the current administration wants this policy of America first at all costs, mm-hmm. including other families. And I, I guess there is a contingent in this country that is comfortable with that, which is sort of terrifying. Yeah. So I want to close by asking you both a question. What are the positive things you want to see changed? I want to turn around at the end of Yorktown <laughs> and look at George Washington and say, we won um, in a couple of years and and mean it. That's the first thing I want is I want that moment to mean something beautiful uh, again. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be great if our government began to see themselves really again as for the people and of the people and not above the people, right? True civil yeah. servants. Yeah. Yeah, that sort of doing it for the public good, as mm-hmm. it were, and, and in that yeah. way. And not for a career. Yeah. Well, listen, I want to thank you both for for coming in and, and talking to us today. Um, this is, as you know, sort of the pilot episode of this podcast, and uh, we couldn't be happier to have had uh, both of you here as guests. And um, this was really a lot of fun for me. And um I will just say that if every interview is as much uh, is as interesting and fun as we go forward from here, I'm going to be very happy about doing this. <laughs> so thank you very much. Thank you. This thank is you great. for everything you do here. It's amazing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. I'd like to thank our guests for today, Kelly and Miguel Cervantes and Ashley Hubner of the National Immigrant Justice Center. For more information on the work of NIJC, you can visit immigrantjustice.org. Talking Liberties was produced by Max Bever, executive producer Chris Olson, and it was mixed by Philip Von Dern. A special note of thanks to our executive director, Colleen Connell. Subscribe to this podcast and rate us. Visit our website at aclu-il.org for more information. Contact us directly by emailing talkingliberties, one word, at aclu-il.org. Until next time, this is Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. See you soon.